We're carrying on Revelation. We're into the letter to the church in Philadelphia. Read with me, Revelation 3, verses 7 to 13. And to the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So Philadelphia. Philadelphia was built um, in a very strange place. Uh, People still wonder why they would ever build a city where Philadelphia is. It was on very fertile volcanic land, so there's all kinds of vineyards and wonderful things there. But in 17 AD, that earthquake that had destroyed Sardis also destroyed Philadelphia because it sits on the fault line. And so, as a result, Philadelphia is a sort of city that is always experiencing tremors, was always experiencing. And, um, in fact, it was so poorly designed, people wondered why it was there, that a, a historian named Strabo, a Greek historian, has this to say. The city of Philadelphia, ever subject to earthquakes, incessantly the walls of houses are cracked, different parts of the city being thus affected at different times. For this reason, but few people live in the city, and most of them spend their lives as farmers in the country, since they have a fertile soil. Yet one may be surprised at the few that they are so fond of the place when their dwellings are so insecure, and one might marvel still more at those who founded the city. The city people didn't live in it. People would work during the day in the city and then leave and live outside. It was like Toronto, become a ghost town at night. Not, not quite a ghost. And so people marveled at it. And um, one of the things you, you see here is this, this city became a big friend of Greek culture. After it was crushed by an earthquake, uh, the emperor Tiberius spent a lot of money, was very generous in rebuilding it. And so they named their city Neo Caesarea, or Caesarea, uh, New Caesar land, basically. Um, and then later they named the city for a short time Flavia, after Domitian's wife. And it was such a hotbed, they, they imported and exported everything Greek. So much so that historians refer to it as a missionary site for Hellenism, Greek culture. Because they would send, literally create people and send them out to promote the Greek way of thinking, of living, all, over, all through the empire. And in this situation, you have a church. A church that is insecure, physically, right? Because the church is living there and they're also worried which is no surprise that Christ comes and says, I'll make you a pillar, because there's insecurity in the land. But not just that, they're so Greek, they're so secular, they're so not Christian, that the church is growing up in a very hostile place. And yet, they endure. And Henry David Thoreau, if you know Thoreau, he was an essayist, American, 
um, he had this interesting line to say. If a man does not keep pace with his companions, perhaps it's because he hears a different drummer. That's where we get the march to a different tune kind of idea from Thoreau. And the church in Philadelphia, according to this letter, is such a place that seems to be marching to a different tune. They seem to be uh, all at once living in a, in a world where they should be marginalized. We know they're being persecuted. We know they're being held down. And yet, they're thriving. It's almost like they're not living to the, and, and walking to the same drum that this, the culture is. And as a result, what they're doing, and it's, it's stuff you'll hear if you've read enough theology, they're living in the already and the not yet. See, they have to live in a city that everything around them, all their circumstances, says Christ can't be on the throne. And yet they're living as if he is on the throne. And that is difficult. And the letter is so full of praise from Christ. It's one of the two that is only praise. And it's so full of praise, it tells us and it teaches us how to live like Philadelphia. How to do that in a culture that we're in, which is very similar. And so what we're going to look at is we're going to see how it is that you... how to, how is it that the church is able to live in the not yet, to live in the already? I'll explain these things as we go. And then, to, and then the living that's coming. Okay? So how we live in the not yet, the already, and the living that's coming. So let me explain those things. First one is living in the not yet. Have you noticed when Jesus shows up uh, in his first things he says in his earthly ministry is repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And that's the same message he has throughout. The kingdom of God is at hand. And yet, you would assume if the kingdom of God is at hand and Christ was reigning, then the world wouldn't be such a messed up place. And so you have this notion of the already, it's already here, the kingdom of God is here, but it's not yet fully realized. And let me use some scriptural examples of where you see this throughout the Bible. First, you see it in the question of adoption. So I'll put this one up on the screen, and I won't say all the passages, but on one hand, you see them, the, Paul says, you have received the spirit of adoption. You, you're, you're adopted as children of God. But then he also says, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we, as we wait eagerly for adoption. So you see, you have it, but it's also coming. You don't have it. You have it and you don't. He says same, similar things about redemption. And the next one here. So he says, in him, we have redemption through his blood. We're redeemed by his blood. But he also says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, meaning a day in the future. So you've been redeemed, but you're, going, you're being redeemed. He says also about sanctification. That's the process by which you become more like Christ, sanctified. He says to those sanctified in Christ, meaning Christians, you're sanctified in Christ. And yet, look at the, well, I'll read the whole thing. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you. thought you already were. Why does he have to sanctify you? Why does he sanctify you completely? And so on. So I won't read the rest of that. Then, salvation. He speaks about salvation in the same terms. For by grace you have been saved through faith. So you have been saved. But, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him. Shall we be saved in the future? See? Already, and they're not yet. Um, resurrection. He says the same thing about resurrection. He says continually that we are raised up with him. We have been raised with him. And yet, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. So there'll be a second, this other sort of resurrection. So all through scripture, we're seeing this already and not yet. And 
the sim- there's lots of ways you can l- understand this. But the simplest way, I mean, yesterday kind of ruined it because it was such a beautiful day yesterday. But think about this. It was spring for a long time, for a month. It didn't feel like spring. It felt like winter. The calendar said spring. It's already spring. But the weather's saying it's not spring. And in the same way, the Bible speaks of, our, of the kingdom of God, that it is spring. It's clearly spring. But it doesn't feel like it. And it didn't feel like that for the church in Philadelphia, obviously. And we see it very clearly. The way, they did, they, the, way the church was experiencing winter in the midst of spring, the, the, the fact that Christ had, didn't seem to be on the throne, was at least in two ways that's referred to in the letter. The first is the mention of the synagogue of Satan again. That shows up in the, in the letter to Smyrna as well. And the synagogue of Satan, what he means is, uh, if you, may, you can recall, you can listen to the sermon again if you'd like, but the Jews in the Roman Empire enjoyed a certain degree of exemption from religious service. They didn't have to worship the emperor because the, Jew, the, the Romans realized that the Jews were uh, problematic people to lead, uh, but also advantageous, so let's give them an exemption. But when Christianity arises as a, a sect within Judaism, they automatically get exemption too, but it becomes very quickly clear to the, church, to the Jews and to Rome that they're not the same. And so the Jews begin to worry. If we continue to let the Christians cause trouble, then we as Jews are going to lose the privileged place we have in Rome. So they expel Christians from the synagogues. And they kick them out. And, and you may recall I mentioned something called the Curse of Menim, which, again, you can go back and, and listen to. So they are booted out of, of, their, of their network, of their family, of their support network, of everything that they were able to, to really count on. So they're struggling in that way. But then they're also being marginalized. When Christ calls, it says you have little power. Little power is kind of, think about the way we speak about the marginalized groups in our society. Marginalization occurs when a more powerful group gets a smaller group and pushes them out to the periphery of society. And it restricts or limits or, or makes difficult their access to basic programs and resources and services. And it could be uh, for religious reasons, gender, it could be any number of class distinctions, immigration, any n- language. For whatever reason, we say, we don't really love this people. And what we're going to do is we're going to make it difficult for them to, to get jobs. We're going to make it difficult for them to have health care or physical protection or any number of other things. And in that way, they become marginalized. And there's plenty of marginalized groups today as well. And the church had this as well. Again, go back to the second sermon I preached when I talk about the ways they were marginalized, the way if Christians didn't offer sacrifices to the gods of their guilds that they were a part of, they couldn't practice their trade. So they were being pushed out of the marketplace slowly. They were pushed out of social settings because at these social gatherings where you acquired social power and clout, you had to also participate in these rituals and they wouldn't do it. And slowly what you're seeing is the church is being marginalized. And Christ knows it. He says, you have little power. You can't, you, you don't have a say in the way you live. Not, not as strongly as you should. And yet, despite that, they still have not forsaken Christ. And what happens when you live as a, as a marginal person, be it in the ancient world or today, is summed up nicely by a guy named Everett Stonequist. He was an American sociologist in his, mar, his really seminal book called The Marginal Man. And he says this, The marginal man is condemned to live in two societies, and in two not merely different, 
but antagonistic cultures. His mind is the crucible in which two different and refractory cultures may be said to melt and either wholly or in part fuse. What he means is, think about, let's apply to the Christian example. So the church in Philadelphia is living in two worlds because of the way they're being treated. On the one world, they're being told, you're a prince and princess. You're a child of God. Everything has been put under your feet. And yet, it doesn't feel like that. We're being marginalized. The world is saying, no, it's not true. So they're forced to live in two different worlds. One that people say is make-believe, that Christ reigns and that they have, they're royal and they're honored. And this real world, quotes for those listening, um, that doesn't reflect it. And so the pressure on their faith must have been intense. And many for people even in this room, when you come and hear Carl say things about how great Christ is, how much he loves you, how much he cares for you, and then you go home to your struggling and terrible life, maybe, or your circumstances, it's got to be difficult for your faith because you're on two sides. The world has marginalized Christians. It's trying. And I'm not talking about individuals or governments. I'm saying in general, sinful life plays on us and makes us say, ask the question, is it true? Is he really on the throne? If he was, would there be this suffering? And these things weigh on the church. And yet, by all accounts, we have reason to believe this church in Philadelphia was thriving in this not yet, this, this world that was not quite where Christ was reigning. And I'll explain what I mean when I say that. So that's the first thing. We live in this world where we feel these same pressures, where we wonder, is it really true? Is it really true? But the second thing is how we learn as well as how to live in this already. How do we live? Because the Philadelphia seemed to live as if Christ was enthroned. And let's use this example. Let's go back to the spring metaphor. You and I cannot afford to live as if the calendar is not telling the truth. Spring, like it or not, came. And just because the circumstances and the weather say winter, it doesn't change the fact that if you're a gardener, you're starting your seeds, you're putting up fences, you're doing all the stuff that needs to get done to get things in the ground. Because like it or not, April's coming. Spring is coming. The thaw is coming. You have to do your taxes by April 30th. You can't say to the government, I'm sorry, it was so cold, I thought it was winter. Right? The calendar is telling the truth. You have to assume it is. You have to live that way. If you're a student, you start looking, you start preparing for exams. You can't say to your professors, I'm sorry, I thought it was Christmas break. It's so cold. You see, you have to trust the calendar, not the weather. And as Christians, you must trust the word and not your circumstances. Because your circumstances are going to stink sometimes. And sometimes, the even, maybe even more challenging, is you really have great circumstances. And you're going to start to think, I've got life figured out. I've got it all figured out. And you have to continually go back to the Word and say, I have to trust what it says. It is spring. There is a thaw coming, even if it feels... And let me use this, let me use Scripture to show how the Bible actually says this to you directly. So Psalm 8 is one of the most optimistic psalms, and it's wonderful. But listen to part of what it says. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the sea, or sorry, birds of, that would be weird, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. Now, that's very optimistic because if we take this word for word literal Sometimes you may think, if that's the case, then why is it 
that a snake will bite me and kill me. Because nature doesn't seem to have gotten the memo that I'm in charge. If it's true, then why is it that I, for instance, am terrified of cougars? Living in Calgary, I thought there was a cougar everywhere. When I learned that the mountain lions would fall out of trees and land on you to kill you, that was it. I never, I never walked outside again. I'm a city guy. Anyway, sorry, I digress. But you see, it's such an optimistic perspective. Then it's right, it's logical that if you as a Christian go to a skeptic and say, listen, everything's under my dominion. They'll say, really? You die of cancer like everybody else. You're as susceptible to alcoholism as anybody. You're as susceptible to a bee sting and to any other wild bit of nature as anyone. How can you say you rule over it? Psalm 8 must be lying. And the answer to it comes when Hebrews quotes Psalm 8 and puts it into perspective. Listen to what Hebrews 2 verses 5 to 9 say. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, Psalm 8, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little, uh, sorry, for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Here. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. But at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So, see what he's saying. Everything has been put under his feet, but we don't see it that way yet. We still see animals attacking us. We still see pandemics. We still see hurricanes. And he says, but what we do see is him. But what we see is him. So the Hebrews writer is brilliant here. What he's saying is, look at Christ. Christ comes to the earth, and he is the king of glory. He is the one who Psalm 8 could speak of in its perfect, perfect uh, fulfillment. Everything is under his feet. And yet he suffered. He suffered as a man. He suffered the same things as we suffer. And yet, his suffering did not diminish his glory, but was evidence of his glory. And now, if the suffering of Christ didn't diminish his glory, then your suffering can't diminish yours. See? And so, it seems to me that the church at Philadelphia understood this very basic but so important and something we often miss, truth, that Christ is who he says he is. And although we don't see everything yet under his feet because it's spring, but the world is still cold, we don't see that, but we do see him, and so we can endure. So when he shows up to the church at Philadelphia holding the key of David, which is two references here. The first one is a throwback to chapter 1, when he says, he was dead and now is alive, and I, have the, I hold the keys of Hades and of death. And so he has the keys to life and salvation. But when he speaks about being the key holder for David, he's talking about Isaiah 22, verses 20 to 23, and I won't read all of them, we can, but I'll give you a synopsis of it. Isaiah says, there's a guy named Eliakim, and he is the key holder for the king Hezekiah in Judah. And he, as a key holder, has, every, he has access to the, the king, you can go to the king anytime he wants, and he has access to all that is the king's. And so when, he, when Christ shows up and says, I hold the key of David, the only other reference is here. And what he is saying is, I hold the access to life and death, not the culture. And I am the one who holds access to change your circumstances. Think about how he opens a door that no one can shut, which it says here as well, that he'll be, oh, he shall open and none shall shut. 
And what he does is imagine you're in a room and an open door comes. What is it? It opens from one situation into a new one, from one circumstance through the door into a new one. And so Christ is saying to them, I know what the world looks like. I know it feels cold, but I have opened a door and no one's going to shut it. The spring is coming. Not to be confused with winter is coming. If you watch that show, which you shouldn't, I'm joking. So he comes, and the church in Philadelphia seems to have understood that, that he, and believed it, that he could do this. And where is the kingdom of God then? Where is the kingdom of God here and at this moment when Christ has not yet returned to bring it in fullness? Because right now he is king, but not everybody recognizes his kingship. When I walk into a children's uh, nursery, I might be the pastor, but no one cares. Those kids are just kids, right? There's, there's two, well, I don't want to say rebellion, that's too much for the poor kids. But in an, Christ is saying, I have come. I am king of this world, but for the moment, they can rebel. There's rebellion. So where is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is wherever Christ reigns. And if you are a Christian, this is why Thoreau is right. Then you believe that the drumbeat of the king is the one you follow, not the world's. And so Christ is king in your heart, and in this building, hopefully, and in your homes, and in your communities, where you are. Because what happens when you think he's king is you say, I know there's these rules of the land which I'm going to follow, but there's a greater rule that I am going to obey. And that will oftentimes put you at odds with the world, like it did with Philadelphia, why they're kicked out of the synagogue, why they're marginalized. Because we are told if there is a king, and he is on the throne, and we believe he's on the throne, we obey him. And when he calls us then to be salt and light, He's calling us to think about salt, right? I've, if you've listened to Sermon on, uh, Sermon on the Mount, I cover this. Salt preserves. That's one of the things it does. So we go as church people into our world, and we look for where there is good. Because there are, there is good. God has bestowed common grace on the land. There's good things. And we go in and we preserve the good things in the culture. We make them even better, because salt makes things taste better. Steak with, a salt, with salt is better than steak with no salt. And so we do that. But at the same time, salt will irritate wounds. So there are going to be moments when we're going to be hated. If you're light, you will bring warmth to the world by healing the impact of sin in the world, by bringing food and housing and whatever is needed to people. But you're, and you're also going to shine light on dark areas, which is good. But light is very painful on the eyes of those who are asleep or dead. Well, dead, maybe not. But asleep, surely. It irritates them. And I'll tell you what, they also hate when the light shines and reveals things that they would prefer kept secret. And so we are called, where is the kingdom of God? How does Philadelphia do it? They manage to live in this world where they're marginalized and persecuted, and yet not only honor God, but as they oppose the world, not dishonor the world. It's very difficult. Very difficult. But they seem to have managed to do this somehow. They do it by keeping. He says, you kept the word. You endured my word. It's, it's an act of obedience. You've kept my word. I've told you to be patient, and you've been patient. And they seem to have managed to do this. And this is not glamorous. You know, oftentimes we, I love the biographies of the great saints of the church, you know, the, and, that, and those are good, and they're encouraging. But they can possibly mislead us into thinking that you and I are called to be world changers all the time. And social media doesn't help, right? Because social media says, if you don't have something post-worthy, you're not really living. And yet, the bare, mundane, ordinariness of obedience in Philadelphia has to be noted. There's a scholar, David Shaw, and he says, the kingdom of God is not something entirely invisible out there. 
but that it is actually something we can see at work in the everydayness of our lives. It might not look spectacular. It is faithfulness in the ordinariness of life. And that is good news because most of life is, well, ordinary. And this is, should be incredibly, he says it's good news. The reason it's good news is this. Some people are struggling so badly in life, the last thing they need to hear when they're struggling with finances and their kids and their jobs and their health, the last thing they need to hear is, well, go out and be a missionary in Africa. Go out and make change the world. You can do it. You've got the Spirit of God in you. What they need to hear is, God wants me to just do the right thing tomorrow. He wants me to wake up and honor Him when I wake, to love Him and to care for people and to honor Him when I'm driving, when I'm at the grocery store, when I'm raising my kids. Whatever it is, this ordinariness of life. Christianity is not usually very glamorous. It just means honoring Christ with the next decision. And Philadelphia seems to have understood this. I think that's why we're not told a whole lot about what they've done specifically. So, they managed to do it. The reason that they can endure this not yet, this, this cold time, is because they believe so completely that Christ is in the throne, that spring is coming that they live as if he has come, which is what we do, right? That's what we're supposed to be doing. Now, lastly, how do we live in what is coming? Because here's, here's, this is the, 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 the rewards that come when you conquer. But let me start with a story. Put a picture of a guy up. His name is Joshua. It's a true story. Joshua is a homeless man in Honolulu, Hawaii. And on August 4th, 2017, he was in line waiting to get food at a shelter. He fell asleep in that line on the sidewalk. He woke up to find police arresting him. He didn't know why. Uh, he assumed it was because it's against the law to sleep on the sidewalk, which it is in Honolulu. Um, so he thought it was that, but quickly he realized they were calling him, this guy's name, Thomas. They kept calling him Thomas, Thomas. And because this Thomas character has, uh, had violated his parole for drug charges, so they were arresting him thinking he was Thomas. He continually said, I am not Thomas. I'm Joshua. And he's a very complicated name. That's why I'm just using first names. And they didn't believe him. So much so that he was put into a psychiatric hospital and medicated for two years. He spent two years, I mean, this is like a nightmare, isn't it? That they didn't believe him. They, every time he said, I'm not Thomas, they said, he's just crazy. He's just crazy. He's delusional. Doctors agreed. But you know what? No one ever checked his fingerprints. No one ever checked his ID, anything. And because he was homeless, his family didn't know. So he, for two years, he's there until finally somebody says, gosh, he really is persisting in this delusion. Let me check. And they found out he was not Thomas. He's Joshua. So they uh, immediately, uh, but very quietly, cover it up and release him, hoping nothing, the word won't get out. Now, sad story. But this, in effect, is what Christians suffer today. Not, you see, because we come and we tell people, listen, I'm a son of God. Like it or not, I am royal and I will have many things under my feet if I can, if I can endure this world. And the world will come to you and say, um, no, you're no prince, Carl. None of you are princes. In fact, if anything, you're deluded, you're hypocritical, you're narrow-minded, you're a bigot, you're a sexist, you're a homophobe, right? And there's this mistaken identity. The world hasn't seemed to have gotten the memo that you and I are children of the king. They don't, they don't seem to have understood it. So we're struggling in a similar thing, in that this, this mistaken identity. And so Christ comes and says, I know you have not been honored as you should be. I know that. 
And there's, when you, if you are still able to endure, knowing that you're not going to be honored, those of you who hear this different drum and hear it and march to it um, and hear that louder than the, than the drum of the world, there's going to be two things you're going to get. The pillar, you're going to be made a pillar, and you're going to get the name of God, his city, and of Christ on you. Let me explain those two quickly, because these rewards are incredible. Incredible rewards for those who live faithfully in this cold spring. Now, the first thing is this pillar. Here's, remember, Philadelphia is this place that earthquakes, right? Earthquakes were always rocking it constantly, so people didn't live there. So to be a pillar means you who have had to live in insecurity, not just physically, but economically, socially, in every other way, there will be firm foundation. You'll be a pillar. And in the ancient world, in, in ancient Rome, what would happen is if you were a civil servant, you, were, you worked in the city, you were a public servant, and you had a really distinguished career, then they would take your name and they would carve it into a pillar in one of the temples in the city to say, this person was a pillar of our city. They helped build it. They helped. The reason it is the way it is is because of this person's hard work. And they were given this lasting glory beyond their years. So when Christ says, I will make you a pillar, it looks like he's catching on that cultural, that cultural practice of the ancient world and saying, I am going to do a similar thing. The honor that you were denied, I am going to give you for eternity. The stability you were denied, I'll give you for eternity. And so there's this reward that they hold out for. And then there's this incredible part here at the very end, which is, I think, even more wonderful is when he says, I will give them the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, and my own new name. Now, all through life, they've been mistaken. They've been thought to be imbeciles. If you were, again, if you were, especially if you were in my uh, class where I taught the, the introduction to Revelation, you would have heard more. But you were mocked as a Christian. You still are, if you're a Christian. People still think you're an idiot. And all this time, Christ says, the, you know, they've had this one idea of your identity. And an identity in the way you described yourself in the ancient world told people everything they needed to know about you. So if I was an ancient guy, I would say something like, if somebody says, who are you? I would say, my name is Carl, son of Ernesto, Portuguese name. Um, son of Ernesto, resident of Toronto, born in Toronto. So Carl of Toronto, son of Ernesto, husband to Sarah. And by that, they would know a lot of what they need to know. They'd know if my dad was a scoundrel, they'd know I was likely to be a scoundrel, or they'd think so. If they know I'm from Toronto, they would think I was whatever. And when Christ comes and he gives these three things, he says, I'm giving you the identity that you have clung to in life. The one that looked so fake to the world that they didn't believe was true, but you clung to is going to be yours. You will no longer be Carl of Toronto, son of Ernesto, married to Sarah, but you're going to be Carl son of God, resident of the New Jerusalem, spouse to Christ your Lord. And this new identity where finally people will realize, like I imagine Joshua would have felt when he was let out of the prison, out of the mental hospital. Can you imagine the relief? Finally, they know who I am. Finally. And this is being offered to us. This is if we endure in this not yet, believing in the already. And if you're a Christian, you cannot endure without these promises. Because if you try to endure through your pain, and you know, people often say, you know, suffering, um, as if so, people think if you suffer, uh, ju just simply suffering makes you a better person. You know, it's like, oh, they've had a hard life. Listen, suffering doesn't make you a good person. I know many people who have suffered and are bitter, angry people. We need to cling to something 
that's far greater than just our, our, our willpower. So we have these promises. If Christians, you, you embrace them, they're yours. If you're a skeptic, I'll say this to you. Haven't you kind of always thought that you're more valued than the world seems to think you are? Haven't you always thought that you're more lovable, that you're kinder than the world thinks? Even when you're, miserable, when you're doing miserable things with your life, haven't you always kind of thought, and I know I was this, I'm, we, we have all experienced this, even when you do things you know are deplorable, don't you think, that's not really me. I'm, something, I'm better than the way I treat my, my wife. I'm better than the way I, I work. My work ethic is, is not reflective of my heart. You believe that you are more valued than, you claim, than the world seems to identify you as. And the reason you feel that way is because you're actually really valuable. You just don't know it yet. And you may go through your whole life saying, I'm not that valuable. Christ is a lie. Why is the world like this? That's your prerogative. However, if your value is determined by the price somebody would pay for you, like any other product, then what is your value if Christ was willing to die for you? Son of God, all things would die for you. So if you're a Christian, embrace this incredible promise. If you're not and you're a skeptic, embrace what you've already kind of, you've had tugging at you. I know, I was there. You have a moment even now to accept it. Or you can keep going about your way. That's your choice. We, of course, urge you to do the other. Let's pray.